Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. And let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel, that Christ is our righteousness. And that when Satan tempts us to despair, he tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and we see him there who made an end to all of our sin. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son out of your great love for us, sending Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life that gets credited to us sinners who daily turn from you. We ask now, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in these verses that we're looking at this morning. And then may we leave here empowered by your spirit to share the good news of the gospel with those in our lives. Do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. By 9.10 a.m., John Winter Smith, just winter to those who know him, had already been up for three hours, visited four Starbucks, eaten one Starbucks donut, downed a Starbucks double shot espresso, and 12 ounces of regular Starbucks coffee. He's jittery, but he's still on game, poised and ready to complete his life mission to visit every Starbucks in the world. Crazy, huh? You may be thinking there's no way he can do it, but he's doing pretty well. Since he started his journey in 1997, he has visited 8,654 stores in the U.S. and Canada. That's 99.6% of the stores in North America. He has also visited 2,132 international stores. He's a contract computer programmer. He works just enough to fund his obsession. And he's laid out a few specific rules. He stops only in Starbucks that the company owns, which has eliminated you know, some 3,000 licensed spots that you find in like airports and Albertsons and grocery stores, things like that. And he has to drink caffeinated coffee in each. He's doing pretty well here when he began his journey. As of uh, this story that was written in 2004, Starbucks was opening an average of 10.2 new stores a week, and they've slowed down a little bit because of the economy, but this hasn't dampened winter's spirit by any stretch of the imagination. He says, I can always visit them faster than they can build them. That's just a numerical fact. You can visit his website, starbuckseverywhere.net, and find out more about it. He's been all over the media. There's been a documentary about him. Where did it all begin? It began in Plano, Texas, a suburb north of Dallas in 1997. Uh, and, and Winter used to come into the stores that I worked at, so I know him and see him often. But he says this, The idea randomly popped into my mind. What would it be like to visit every Starbucks? Would I be the only one? Could I do something unique? And so he began his journey. A normal trip, he hops into his Honda Civic, loaded with CDs, T-shirts, and egg crate mattress to sleep on a baseball bat for protection. 
He blazes through stores, hitting a record 28 in one day on a swing through Portland, Oregon in 1999. At night, he finds a Walmart parking lot where he can sleep in his car. He says the car has no air conditioning and it smells of stale coffee. But it isn't all fun and games, though. Winter says after about four stores, the coffee loses all taste. It doesn't taste good at all. I'm not enjoying drinking it. After an extreme number of stores, I have to wash out the taste with water after every sip because it's starting to make me sick. Now, Starbucks hasn't exactly embraced winter. A few years ago, they uh, sent him Howard Schultz's first book and some coffee mugs, and they've been pretty quiet. But, but in a recent statement, at least when this was written, they said this, winter demonstrates a great enthusiasm for the Starbucks experience, and they called his passion flattering. Now, his passion for Starbucks has a, an ability to pull people in, and people start to get passionate with this. And a girl contacted him a few years ago and said, they're opening a new Starbucks in my town. You need to come check it out. And he replied, you know, hey, it's, it's a licensed store. It's not a real Starbucks store. But they began talking, and kind of an interest happened there romantically. And uh, the relationship blossomed, and then he visited her. He met her face-to-face. Her name was Jody Morgan. And Morgan says that winter was a little more jittery than she had expected (laughs) the first time they met. But then she notes that he had already been to five Starbucks by the time they met. But check this out with Winter. Winter explains that no matter how things go with Morgan, his life is Starbucks. There's no way to be finished unless Starbucks goes out of business or changes its name. Those are two scenarios under which I would be essentially done but there's really no such thing. The best I can hope for is to keep up. I can't foresee myself stopping. It's too rewarding an experience. See, the single burning passion of John Winter Smith's life is to visit every Starbucks in the world. That's passion. That's commitment And as we look at these verses today, verses 12 through 16, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul had a single burning passion in his life, and it was to know Jesus Christ, his Lord and his Savior. Paul's single burning passion to know Jesus should land on us and say, am I that way? See, Winter said the taste of Starbucks after a while was too much for him, but Paul would say that when you come to Jesus Christ and you taste the fountain of living water, you want more. You don't have to rinse his taste out of your mouth. In fact, you will want more of it. Disciples are called to a single burning passion in life to know Jesus and to love him more than anything, any person in this world. Our big idea today is this. The gospel frees you to passionately pursue Jesus with determination 
and without distraction. The good news that Paul talked about in verses 1 through 11, that when you trust in Jesus Christ, you get his righteousness. His perfect, sinless life gets credited to your account, and he takes your sin. That's the gospel. And Paul says when you embrace that gospel message, it frees you to pursue Jesus, not to earn his favor because you already have it, but to enjoy him. And that's what we saw last week. And we need to pick up with verse 10 to see what Paul is talking about here to get the flow of his argument. Originally, I wanted to preach all of chapter 3 in one sermon. I realized I couldn't do that. And then I thought I'd preach chapter 3, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And about halfway through the week, I had to cry uncle and say, I can't do it. Can't fit it all in. So let's go back and see what Paul was talking about last week. It all kind of flows together. These, these paragraph divisions aren't original. Okay, we add them there and we put little headings and it kind of breaks up the thought. But look at verse 10. Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this resurrection or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says, I have not attained perfection yet. I have not attained this resurrected body that I want and to be with Jesus forever. Paul's saying, he says, by whatever means possible, I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. I don't care if, they, if I'm martyred, if they chop my head off. I don't care if I die a natural death. All I know is that someday I want to die to be with Jesus, and then he's going to raise my body up at the end. and I'll, My body will be glorified, and I will be with Jesus forever. He says, that's my passion to be in a resurrected, glorified body with Jesus, enjoying him forever. But Paul says, I have not obtained this perfection yet. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This verse clearly points out that no Christian, no human being is ever perfect in this life. Only Jesus was perfect. We all sin, even after we become Christians. You can never attain to perfection in this life. These are the knots of running after Jesus. The sermon is called The Knots and Butts of Passionately Pursuing Jesus. This is one of the knots. You will not be perfect in this life. No one will. Only Jesus was. But some of you may need to hear this because there are Christians who think they can arrive at a state of perfection and never sin anymore. This is what John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, believed, and he interpreted this verse. He thought that complete perfection in this life was possible. He read verse 15, which says, if those of you who are mature think this way, and that's the same Greek word here for perfect that Paul's using in in verse 12, and he said, we'll see, People can reach perfection because Paul has said, let those who are perfect think this way. I'll explain what I think Paul is saying there later. But Wesley was wrong. We are sinners. We will never be perfect in this life. A story is told of a minister who was preaching and said that he had reached the state of perfection. And someone came up after the sermon and said, Pastor, do you mind if I ask your wife whether you've achieved the state of perfection? 
And the minister responded, well, you can ask her, but she doesn't believe in that doctrine yet. Of course not. We'll never reach the state of perfection. And if somebody thought they reached the state of perfection, if, and I don't recommend you do this, but if you went and slapped them in the face, I imagine suddenly they would realize, I have not reached the state of perfection. Or if you took a pie and slammed it in their face, they would so- soon realize, I am not perfect. So what is Paul speaking of when he uses the words obtained, perfect, made it his own? The answer is in verse 11 where he spoke of the resurrection. He said that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he has not attained, he has not obtained, he has not been made perfect, he has not made it his own. The resurrection was still out there, something that he was longing for and wanted. He wanted a new glorified body and to be with Jesus on the new earth and to enjoy him forever. He says, I'm not perfect. But there is a sense in which every disciple of Jesus Christ is perfect. Positionally, in Christ, Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has perfected every Christian, even though we're still being sanctified. That we positionally are perfect in Christ. We've been given his righteousness. We are covered with his righteousness. And when God the Father looks at your life, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. You stand blameless, Christian, in God's eyes right now. So there is this sense in which we are perfect positionally in Christ, but we're awaiting that final day when our bodies will be glorified, perfected, and we'll, we'll never get sick again, and we'll never sin, and, and we'll be with the Lord forever. And we'll talk more about that next week as Paul talks about how Jesus will transform our bodies. But Christian, when you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you are positionally perfect in Christ. You are blameless You are justified, you are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though you're still a sinner. Martin Luther said, uh, he said, simul justice et peccator. He meant simultaneously justified and a sinner. That Christians are simultaneously justified in God's eyes, but we still sin every day, right? Just your, your spouse sins every day, you sin every day, your children sin every day, your co-workers, your neighbors, your pastors, your elders, your deacons. We all sin every day. But for those who have trusted in Christ, we are justified. But at the same time, we are still a sinner. Paul says, I have not attained to the resurrection of the dead. I have not made it my own. I still sin. I still struggle. So what does this mean for us? You will always struggle with sin while you're living in this world, okay? You're all, you may conquer certain things, certain temptations may not uh, be alluring to you, but you will sin every day and people in your life will always sin. Your spouse will, your children will, your coworkers, your fellow church members. And so we need to remember and show grace to those in our life because we're all sinners. One of my heroes, John Owen, a Puritan theologian and pastor said this, he says, your enemy is not only upon you, but is in you. He was talking about indwelling sin, that we need to put it to death. He said, sin is a living coal continually in their houses, which if not properly attended to, will catch their homes on fire. He says, the mortification or the killing 
of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh is the constant duty of believers. We are constantly to be fighting and killing sin and taking it by the throat and saying, I will not give in to you. I am alive in Christ. We will always be making war with sin. We're always engaged in the battle to fight sin, to make war with it and say, you will not conquer me. The sin will not conquer me. I will die to it. To pursue Jesus means that you make war on the sin in your life. Owen said this, Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. He who does not kill sin in this way takes no steps toward his journey's end. He who finds not opposition from it and he who sets not himself in particular to its mortification is at peace with it, not dying to it. His point is this. If we don't fight sin, we are making no progress to our end, which is to be like Christ. We're at peace with it. He's saying you're making no progress in the spiritual journey if you're at peace with your worry or if you're at peace with your lust, or if you're at peace with your doubts, or your anger, or pride, or whatever it is that you're struggling with, if you're at peace with it, you're making no progress to your journey, which is to be like Christ. If you're not walking over the belly of your lusts and your sin, you're not making progress towards holiness. So the gospel frees us to passionately pursue Jesus with determination and without distraction. Notice the not and the but here. Not that he is perfect, but he's pressing on to future perfection. In spite of this, Paul says, I am pressing on to make Jesus my own. This term here for pressing on is the first of several athletic terms that Paul uses in this this paragraph here. It It means to run fast after something to catch it. It was used of athletes who would chase one another down in their games. It was used of Hunters who would, who would hunt down their prey and, and chase it down to find it, to get it. And Paul says, I am running fast after Jesus. I am chasing him down because he caught me. He wants to seize Jesus. And by this, he means his future resurrected body and being with Jesus forever to enjoy him. But why does he do it? Why does he press on? Why does he chase after Jesus like an athlete? Why does he chase after Jesus like a hunter? Look at verse 12 again. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says that he wants to run after Christ. He wants to grab him precisely because Christ has seized him. Christ has grabbed him. Christ has apprehended him. This, there's a lot of theology in that phrase, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Paul is pressing on to make the resurrection his own, pressing on to be with Jesus forever in a new glorified body. Why? Not because he made Jesus his own, not because he made Jesus his savior. No, because Christ made Paul his own. Christ made Paul his own possession. Let that truth sink in. Christ Jesus, Christian, has made you his own. You didn't make him anything. 
He chose you. He apprehended you. He grabbed you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He opened your eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as it's shown in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. He transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He did the choosing Think about how life-changing that can be, that God chose you. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That God chose us when we were running away as enemies and rebels. Romans 12, 1 speaks to this. Many of you know Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice. In order to understand what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice and to understand Romans 12, 1 and 2, not being conformed to the world, you have to understand Romans chapter 9 through 11 because Romans chapter 9 through 11 come before Romans 12. And in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul says that God has sovereignly chosen a people for himself. Three chapters on God's wisdom and his sovereignty in electing a people to bring to himself, to be his own possession. And then he says, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, or in light of what I just said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice according to the mercies of God. Okay, get the connection there. This verse is saying the same things that Philippians 3.12 is. Precisely because God chose you, precisely because he had mercy on you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, he's saying, if God chose certain people to come unto him and to be his children, and you've experienced that, what's the appropriate response to receiving God's mercy? You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and you live for him. How do you respond to Jesus apprehending you, Jesus grabbing you, Jesus seizing you? The appropriate response is that you turn and you press on to know him, to love him, to take hold of him because he took hold of you. That's the gospel. Jesus apprehends sinners who are born enemies of God and he adopts them into his family and it frees you when you understand that. To passionately pursue him without any distractions and with this determination to enjoy him. Not to try to earn his favor, but to rest in the favor that he gives you and in the righteousness that covers you. Now look at verses 13 to 14. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice these words here, but one thing I do. This is Paul's passion in life. He wants Jesus. He pursues Jesus. He is determined to know more of Jesus. He is single-minded. Paul wakes up in the morning and he says, the one thing that I want to do today is to pursue and know Jesus Christ. I want to chase him down. I want to apprehend him because he apprehended me. That's the passion you see. 
single burning passion. This one thing I do, Paul says, as I press on to know Jesus. Now notice the knots and the butts here of running after Jesus. The knot here is forgetting what lies behind. Everything in Paul's past was gone. He does not look back. He keeps his gaze forward. He is not distracted by anything. And this includes his past sins and his past failures and his past victories. Now, Paul would say, yes, remember the mercies of God in your life, that God has been merciful to you. Remember his goodness to you. But those, those areas of self-righteousness, Paul would say, as a Pharisee who was blameless under the law, Paul says, I forget that because I have Christ's righteousness and his past sins and his failures. He says, I forget that and I press on. Some of you, you've wrapped your identity around some sin in your life that you did two years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago, and you obsess over it and you wrap your identity up and you're that person who did that thing. It's not true, Christian. Your identity is wrapped up in what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, not what you did two years ago. It was his perfect life that gets imputed to you and covers you. And Paul says, you know what? That's what I'm focused on. I forget what lies behind. And I'm pressing on for what lies ahead. Notice Paul's using his current body, his mind, to think about who Jesus is and to follow him and to turn away from the things that are in his past. The only way you're going to forget your past, Christian, is to rehearse the gospel, to remember what Jesus has done for you, to renew your mind and to think upon the the cross and to forget the past. That's how you pursue Jesus without being distracted. If there's sin, you need to repent, you ask forgiveness, and you move on. That's the knot of passionately pursuing Jesus. Not dwelling on the past, but, and here's the but, but straining forward to what lies ahead. This is another athletic term that Paul is using. It was used of athletes who were overextending themselves, stretching out and straining their muscles like an Olympic athlete coming on the, the tape at the finish line, stretches out hoping his nose or chin will just will cross the line before someone else. Paul says, I am stretching out, overextending myself, straining my muscles to take hold of Jesus because he has taken hold of me. I am forgetting what lies behind and stretching out with determination and with passion to know Jesus. In fact, he says, I'm pressing on. It's the same word he used in verse 12 of an athlete chasing another athlete, of a hunter chasing his prey. He says, my muscles are extended. I'm stretching out and I'm pursuing and hunting Jesus down. I think what he means by that is that I'm dying to sin and I'm pursuing holiness. And I'm gouging out my eyes and cutting off my hands per Jesus' commandment in Mark 9. Paul is making war on his body when he is tempted to delight in something other than Jesus. He says, I want Jesus and I want to be like him. And so I'm pursuing him with passion. That's his goal. In fact, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal was, was the mark that a runner kept his eye on. It was the, the finish line. 
And that upward call was given to Paul at his conversion, which was to be like Christ ultimately. And Paul says, I have my eyes on that. I'm not slacking off. I'm not lazy. My eyes are fixed on Jesus. I'm determined. The upward call came to me when I trusted in Christ, and I'm fixated on it. Now, Paul wants to make it to heaven. He wants to get there. He wants to, he wants to be resurrected, his body raised up from the earth and glorified and to be uh, on the new earth. But he d- just doesn't want a new body. He wants Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. That's what he wants more than anything. Full steam ahead, running hard, straining his muscles, stretching out his neck to get across the finish line. I mean, when you read Paul, you say, this guy is not lazy in his relationship with Jesus. Why? Because he realizes that Jesus seized him. Jesus grabbed him. Jesus apprehended him. And now he is passionately pursuing his Lord. This is nothing short of normal Christianity. This is normal Christianity. To be so enamored with Jesus that you say, I want to know you, I want to press on after you, I want to chase you down, I want to hunt you down, I want to run after you. We bought the lie that normal Christianity is being passive and never picking up his word and never praying and never serving. This is normal Christianity. To be so enamored with Jesus that you say, I want to know him more and more. And you do that when you rehearse the gospel and you remember that you were an enemy of his and yet he had mercy on you and adopted you into his family. And then you don't slack off and then you pursue him with passion. That's what the gospel does for you. It frees you to passionately pursue Jesus with determination and without distraction. It it frees you not to try to get God's favor, because you already have it, Christian, because of Jesus. It frees you to enjoy him. To say the pressure is off. I can't earn his favor. I've already got it in Jesus. And now I just want to enjoy the God who gives me his righteousness. The gospel frees you to passionately pursue him now. What about that state of perfection that Wesley believed in. Look at verses 15 through 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The word here for mature is the same word that Paul used in verse 12 to say that he's not perfect. So I think Paul is kind of a a tongue-in-cheek way saying, let those who think they're mature think this way. Those people that think they've got it all together, Paul says, let them think this way. Keep passionately pursuing Jesus. But realize you're a sinner and you won't make it. And I love what Paul says. He says, God will reveal that also to you. If you think you're perfect and you've arrived, then Paul says, you know what? I'm not stressing about it because God's going to reveal it to you. In your home or in your workplace or in your church, you're going to rub elbows with someone who gets on your nerves and you're going to realize that you're a sinner. Because God's going to bring people into your life to expose the idols of your heart. So Paul says, you know what? God's going to reveal it to you. If you think you're perfect, just wait. You'll sin soon enough. But he says, the only thing that we, he asked them, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. What, what have they attained in the gospel? Right standing with God. 
justification. They've attained Christ's righteousness. They've been covered with Christ's righteousness. And Paul says, let's live up to what we've attained. In other words, keep rehearsing the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself that you're blameless in God's eyes, that you're adopted into his family. And he says, that will make you a passionate follower of Jesus Christ holding true to all the truths of the gospel. Forgiveness, justification, adoption, sanctification, future glorification. Paul is telling them that the gospel has freed them to passionately pursue Jesus with determination and without any kind of distraction. They don't have to strive and fight for God's favor. They have that in Jesus Christ. Now they are free to run after Jesus as their treasure not to earn his favor, but to enjoy him. So let me ask you today, is Jesus Christ your treasure? Does he make your heart beat? Does he make your heart pump? For John Winter Smith, life was Starbucks, pursuing Starbucks with his whole life. But Christian, what about you? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe say, I'm new to this. Uh, Jesus is my treasure. What are you talking about? You were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if you're not doing that, You don't know what you were made for. I tell my kids all the time, you don't get a toothbrush to try to fix your bike because the toothbrush was not made for that, was it? No, Dad. You were not made for anything else in this world, kids, but to love God and to enjoy Him and to glorify Him. So if you're here today, say, I'm not a Christian. I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. That's why you were created. But there's a chasm between you and God. It's called sin. You were born a sinner. You need to confess your sins and admit that you've broken God's commandments. You've not valued him as the greatest thing in this world. But God did something to remedy your problem. He sent Jesus, who was perfect and never sinned. And Jesus died in your place. And he absorbed all of God's wrath. He took the bullseye that was rightly on your back. And Jesus placed it on himself and God poured his wrath out upon his son to bring you to him. His justice had to be satisfied. Someone had to pay for your sin. Either you in hell for eternity or you can let Christ do it at the cross to take all of the penalty of your sin. And when you repent and you admit that and say, God, I've messed up. I've not lived for you Forgive me. I trust in Jesus that he took my place. Then you're born again. You're a Christian. And then you start passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. But if you're a Christian here today, is Jesus your treasure? For John Winter Smith, he said, the taste of Starbucks after a while, I had to wash it out of my mouth. Not so with Jesus. He's the fountain of living water. And when you taste him, you want more. He is satisfying. He is more than enough for your dry, parched, thirsty souls that are going around in this world and the world offers all these glittery, shiny things that you try to partake of to satisfy you and you walk away empty after a moment of pleasure. Jesus gives you an eternity of pleasure. He is the fountain of living water that when you take a drink from him, you say, ah, That brings him pleasure. That is worship. When you come to Jesus and you can just say, ah, you satisfy me more than anything in this world. For John Winter Smith, 
Starbucks was too rewarding an experience to give up on. And Jesus is too rewarding an experience once you taste him. He is enough for you. Will you come today to drink from the fountain of living water? It's offered free in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. It exposes us as an easily satisfied people when the hope of the gospel is there and knowing your son being indwelt by your spirit God it's enough would you forgive us for pursuing the things of this world would you help us to realize that we always want to wash the taste of the world out of our mouth because it does not satisfy would you make us a people who come to the fountain of living water day after day after day, and that we would be satisfied with all that you are for us in your son, Jesus. Would you make us a people who say that you put more joy in our heart than the world has when their wine and their grain abounds? Would you make us a people who delight ourselves in you so that you give us the desires of our heart, which is you. Satisfy us this morning, Father, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all day. You are more than enough. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net. 